Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge worthy drama, is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Do you, do you know what the family story is about how Mary died? In childbirth. That's, yeah, that, that was the family story we were told by, I was told by your dad as well. But Bindle told us a different story. I won't Kate through this story, but this is what Bindle told me. It started with a call from her brother. I was at university by then, and I remember Mick calling me up and saying, Bindle, you better come home. Dad's going to need help. Mary just died. So I cut math class and got on a train and came home. How did she die? She got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, pregnant, and Dad had told her not to get up in the night and if she had to go to the bathroom to call him and he'd take her. What, why did he say that to her? Because he, didn't, he thought she might fall, but she didn't want to wake him. And she got up and she fell and hit her head, I think. When she passed out and died, There are a lot of new details flying by here, so just to recap. Faith's future much younger wife shows up in the bulletins two weeks after Naomi dies. Within the year, they're married. A few years later, she gets pregnant and then suddenly dies one night on the landing. The family says she died in childbirth, but Bindle says she died by hitting her head. So I looked into Mary's death. And it seems there was no autopsy done at the time because her death wasn't regarded as suspicious. She had a kind of anemia, and the death certificate says she'd fainted. But I did find out that the doctor who examined the body and signed off on this almost certainly wasn't a stranger. So one of Fader's colleagues, a doctor that he knows, comes to the house and certifies the death. Fader is there as a witness of the death, and then his colleague friend certifies it. So there's a level of trust there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't look great, does it? But it also could just be a sort of a ton of circumstances that stack up and you end up asking tons of questions or you wouldn't have asked any questions about it if you hadn't have thought about this stuff before. No, exactly. But that's the thing, right? And Bindle didn't ask any questions. And she clearly never has. Bindle didn't see anything odd in, in any of this. And has never seen anything odd. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. 
and part three of my interview with the amazing Jackie Morton. You just heard a clip from episode five of Ghost Story. Dr. John Dancy's much younger second wife, Mary, who was pregnant, apparently hit her head in the middle of the night and died. That's what the family were told. However, there was no autopsy. Dr. John Dancy's friend, who was a doctor, certified Mary's death. No one asked any questions about Mary. Now, she was pregnant and young, and she died suddenly and unexpectedly in the middle of the night, and Dr. John Dancy was present, and there was no curiosity about that. He must have been incredibly unlucky, if we're to believe that version of events to be true. Okay, as you can tell, we have a lot more to say. So let's rejoin my conversation with Jackie. But before we do, here's your trigger warning and spoiler alert. Okay, let's rejoin the interview. Well, I agree with you, Jackie, and I think it's to the detriment of Dr. Naomi Dancy and to Mary Garston that his narrative was just accepted. There just wasn't any professional curiosity. There wasn't any challenge. There wasn't any testing of what he said. And of course, now we know from everything that Tristan found out about him, he was a water mitty. Yes. Very few things were accurate in what he said. So why create these fantastical stories what it tells us is that he is someone who is believed to be credible and the family bought into his narrative and they have an investment in protecting that narrative to the detriment of the two women. And I felt that it was really only the children who who really believed that Dr. Naomi Dancy was a great woman, even though Kate, you know, shared some things with her great-grandmother, the Save the Children, the United Nations job that Kate performed. Well, Dr. Naomi Dancy was a pioneer and a brilliant woman who became a surgeon when most of the male, well, most of the surgeons at the hospital were men. And there she was holding a job that most other women would only possibly dream of. But she did a lot of work regarding children and her lecturing all the things that she did. And yet, Dr. John Dancy, the whole narrative that seems to be handed down was that she was more invested in her work than being a mom or being at home. It feels like every part of the narrative is controlled by him. And even Kate and other women in the family never questioned any of it. The children were much more curious about what a great woman she was and that potentially that's where the brains in the family came from. And I think that's, you know, really what resonated with me, that in the storytelling of Ghost Story, and I'm just going to say it direct, you've got two women who were murdered, who became less than footnotes in their own murders. And the narrative really did need to be challenged and corrected from the male dominant narrative. And then you've got Ghost Story telling a story that involved two female experts, you and me, and it's like we were erased from the storytelling as well. And I couldn't help but feel there were parallels there. And that didn't feel good to me. I'm with you on that. So I'm absolutely with you on that. And it was quite apparent, less about me and you, but quite apparent that Dr. Naomi Dancy was kind of erased about it. And I'm sure at one point, I think Tristan says to Kate something about, I'm sure he said something about he didn't even know her name to his wife. Do you remember that bit? Yes, Kate said she didn't even know her name. Yes, And yes. Tristan said it again at Dr Naomi Dancy, and she said, Naomi, am I saying that right? Because she hadn't even queried it. That's how strong the family storytelling has been. 
and the name John Dancy. And this was one of my favourite bits, actually, from you, when you're being told that, oh, well, we don't call him Dr. John Dancy when you're referring to him like that. Tristan says, oh, we call him Fader. And you said, well, I'm not going to call him that because that's not corroborated. But also it's an important line to draw on your independence, that you're not invested in creating and memorialising this Walter Mitty character, even though you didn't know about all of that at the time, but you weren't conflicted by biases with even Tristan saying, oh, he's known as, we call him Fader, so that we can denote that this is the Dr. John Dancy. But it is also another way of memorialising him. And it shows that Tristan is obviously part of the family and therefore he has a conflict of interest as he's being pressured when he's a journalist and has to be independent. But of course, this is his family and it matters to him and he doesn't want to upset Kate. But there were tensions there and that was very evident. So maybe Tristan was doing the best that he could, given the circumstances and given the fact that, you know, he is heavily invested. This is his family and it it matters to him. But you and I have no skin in the game. We We have to be independent and we have to say what we see. I have no qualms with Tristan whatsoever. And um, I agree with you that he must have felt absolutely pulled, you know, in every direction. And in fairness to him, you know, he, he is married into the Dancy family. Um, and, and therefore, that would be very difficult for him to have uh, family get togethers. Um, so I do understand it. But from my point of view, um, I was asked to look at this file objectively, which I have done, hand on heart. And when they came to see me, I had, in this book actually, I had loads and loads of questions and notes uh, that I I highlighted and queried it and stuff like that. Absolutely, you know, loads of them. And um, as you did, indeed. So there were so many questions that had to be asked from my point of view as an investigator which weren't answered in this file and therefore from professional curiosity would have to say, I'm not happy with this, this, this and this, which we have discussed with you tonight, Laura. And I'm sure that we could go on and on and talk about other things that I was not happy with. But I think we probably, you know, covered it. I came in here objectively as a professional to look at it in the cold case review, the cold case review eyes, and I'm not happy with the conclusion of murder-suicide. Yes, and I I questioned whether we could say categorically that Morris did this. And I said that we could not reach that conclusion, but there were all these other things that point in one direction, and that's to Dr. John Dancy. So I wasn't categorically saying it could never be Morris with my analysis and my assessment. I said we still have many, many questions that need to be answered. But I think a lot of things were answered for me when I heard the whole story about Dr. John Dancy and that he said that he had gone to Cambridge University, he was a magician, you know, had written pop songs and all these things that made, you know, all by the age of 28, which made him this phenomenal person. And then we find out, actually, it was all just nonsense. And he was a spy, don't forget the spy. Oh, yes, and the spy as well. Spy school. I mean, this incredible life that he's lived and then become a doctor, but yet he's not practising as a doctor 
he's staying at home whilst Dr Naomi Dancy's career is just going from strength to strength. And on the other hand, we do hear right at the end of Ghost Story about Naomi. And we hear that she was a brilliant woman, remarkable personality and achievements of noble character. And that's, to me, very important. Noble character, integrity, beautiful soul... She did a huge amount of work as a gifted lecturer on social issues regarding children specifically. So all these incredible things about her, and that's why I felt so upset about her and Mary Garston not really being centred as much as they should be. And we have to be independent and objective, and that's what I felt that we both brought to the table. So to end ghost story as they did on let's hand it over to the supernatural to make the final determination and not hear all of our detailed analysis was really the second sort of travesty in the storytelling. And, you know, we both agree that Tristan was a nice guy and the production company, they were trying to do things you know, well, I don't know if it was in the right way. I can't talk to that. I don't know how much pressure they got from the family. I don't know whether that was just the out that they went down because there was too much pain coming on from Kate, who said that she didn't know much about the murder, for example, but she felt they were going to be more traumatised by the podcast. Yeah, she did. And that really bothered me, the hearing the tension with Kate and Tristan in in the relationship, but also from Mark and from Hugh, who's a celebrity, these are very difficult things to balance when making a true investigative documentary series. And even the title Ghost Story, it baffled me when it first came out, but now I think it's clear why it's called that. But I would still have rather to have heard all of the experts as somebody who's very interested in the process and the methodology and how you arrive at things. And I think you threw up some very important questions about the locked door, about Morris Tribe, his hands being washed, and and things that a good detective would do. And it seemed to me that Hamish had relied on one key area of information and evidence about the hesitation wounds, and that for him meant that the case could only have ever been the way that it was described by the police, that it was a murder-suicide. But we have to also remember Dr. John Dancy was a, a doctor. So if he is researching heavily, then it is possible. You cannot rule it out. It's possible that that's what happened, that he these hesitation marks came from him. It's a possibility. One of the other experts said in her, it was a woman actually in her experience, that if you had a gun and a razor and they look at the um, statistics for suicide, Cutting your throat was way down. And if you had a gun next to you, having shot, allegedly shot his sister, that, that, that he would have shot himself. So, you know, if you've got, if you tried to shoot Dancy, tried to, according to Dancy, shot the sister, then he tries to fuck about cutting his own throat, so to speak. And for her, that was quite um, another red flag. But when I have thought about this a lot, and then when it came to the final episode, I was kind of disappointed in the seance being the kind of <laughs> strong factor at the end of all this that a pee would have appeased the Dancy family. I was left hanging, absolutely left hanging. And again, it's not about, well, I suppose it is about us because we're talking, but that's the principle is not about us. The principle is about, you know, what's happened to Dr. Naomi Dancy. 
And because of time constraints and everything else, all the evidence in this file, this murder file that is in the National Archives for anybody to see, you know, I have it on my desktop, but anybody wants to go and read it, it's in the National Archives, for everyone to see and examine that evidence. From the evidence in this file, you know, like we've already said, there are many, many, many questions that have to be asked. Now, I couldn't leave that hanging without putting in the public domain the facts from this murder file. I just could not, because it is about the search for the truth. And within my own integrity and my own moral compass, I could not leave it, which is, I think, how we both communicated, didn't we, on social media privately. You were unhappy and I was unhappy. That's yes. This is why I'm thinking about it. But it is about the search for the truth. So the facts in this case, little threads were taken, minor, you know, little threads were taken from this murder file. Um, out of, I don't mean out of context, but there was far more context. And as you said, you dissected his statement, as I did, and all the rest of the uh, information, which would, <laughs> which would ask many, many questions, more than is answered in this file. So, you know, let other people listening to this podcast have have a listen and see what they think about it. You know, I know where, where I'm coming from. Yes, and I think that both of us felt that we wanted to have a right to reply. And I think that's also important. That's healthy that you have debate. Um, when I went over and worked in the FBI for three months, we would sit and have case consults where we would all throw out our opinions and explain how we arrived at that, what evidence supports. And from that process, you actually arrive at a better outcome from listening to other people because no one person really holds all of the knowledge and expertise. And that also is a very healthy part of the process. And I think in true crime as well, what listeners like, they can make the decisions for themselves. They can decide based on everything that they're hearing. But when things are, you know, ended in a or framed in a certain way, and I know for Tristan, he felt it was tongue in cheek, the ghost type part of the story. Yeah. But actually, it was called ghost story in the end was more compelling, I think, that they believed in what they were hearing because Tristan said that he felt relieved hearing what the psychic had said and Kate felt relieved and suddenly the room felt lighter because this was a far better conclusion and outcome to reach in the podcast. And, and that to me just felt like they had received a lot of pressure and therefore they they sidestepped some of the the critical issues that really should have been at, at the centre of it. And I thought Tristan had been open-minded and queried and, you know, challenged things and was the, the keeping the listener sort of straight on things and non-emotional about moving through the discoveries that we were all hearing about. But as I was hearing about them, actually it pointed me even further in the direction that it was most likely Dr John Dancy who didn't just kill Dr Naomi Dancy and Morris Tribe, but most likely killed his second wife, Mary Garston. Most likely, I say, because I haven't even seen the case file for that. But it, the fact that it was written off so quickly, again, based on his narrative, is a huge red flag. And the confidence that he must have got... Well, it enables you to do the next thing and the next thing. And this is a man who's been unchallenged. It's 
Everything he's said has just been taken as as gospel of truth and fact. And that's what irks me as well, because women, we don't get that luxury where we say something and then it's just taken as as gospel. And I do feel, and I'll, I'll share it with you, that's the patriarchal nature of a man's opinion is is worth a lot. And in this case, you've got two women who die suddenly and unexpectedly. And Morris Tribe, who's a war hero, let's not forget, and there's no real questioning about it. And that, for me, I feel is is such a big miscarriage of justice. Um, and I felt strongly about being the voice of those who are voiceless and, and they don't have the right to reply. And I think it is important to bring forward the voice, you know, Morris Tribe, who was an absolute, he, he was awarded the military cross. He was seen as this very kind you know, gentleman, I said, I can, that wrote in the Daily Telegraph, wrote about him. And, and then again, he said a brave, what he actually said, this, the war claimed this clever, affectionate imp who had all the courage of Peter and the humility of Zacchaeus. And it talks about his kind of, you know, career and stuff. And he said, but a murdered man cannot be himself a murderer. He was a clever, willful child murdered by the war so that few can guess what sort of man he might have been. That was by Alexander Patterson, who was the HM, Her Majesty's Commissioner, or it might be His Majesty, Commissioner for Prisons, you know, Morris Tribe. And this man is also kind of spoken about by the relatives you know, as a kind man and he could become irritable in alcohol. That goes with the territory, but it does not make him somebody who would do that to his own sister, who he was very fond of, according to the evidence. Why would you suddenly do that? Yes. And as you say, the only person that is saying that Morris Tribe makes these threats is Dancy. That evidence is not corroborated anywhere by anyone other than John Dancy. So, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think it's important that the facts from this Metropolitan Police file and held in the National Archives should be put out there in the public domain for other people to make up their mind. They may disagree with us, but that doesn't matter really. And they're entitled to disagree. But I think the evidence in this file is quite compelling. Well, it is. And it all points in one direction. And I felt that it was a staged crime scene. It's a staged statement. There are things that are just too perfect about it that should have been red flags. And the Dorothy Sayers part a couple of weeks later is even more compelling, actually, the, of what he's saying. He's announcing exactly what he did and how he did it. And I remember you saying that it, it felt like gloating. And I agree with you on that. Um, why would you invite a crime writer in, particularly as you've trashed crime writers and detective novels? But he very clearly did read them. He's, he knew his daughter read Dorothy Sayers's book. And Dorothy Sayers is from Whitton, which is where a lot of my family live nearby. So there were some geographical sort of connections as well for me about this case. And I just feel that Dorothy Sayers was somebody who was trying to do the right thing. You've got another woman trying to raise the alarm and she was shushed. And that, again, doesn't feel comfortable of shushing people who she had very clear information that, in my opinion, should have been acted upon. So that professional curiosity, again, seems to be missing with this case. And the most obvious thing 
has been believed and become fact over time. But I think this conversation, Jackie, what it really does is just raise our points of view, but also gives the facts of why or our analysis of the evidence and the facts as to why we have those concerns. And my listeners can certainly decide for themselves of where they land. But what about the lovely historian who says we bring our past into our present if we continue not to examine it? The, the wonderful historian yes. who said that on, on the podcast when he was interviewed by Tristian, and that's absolutely true. Um, and I'm sure it's absolutely true for your work and especially kind of from my work, you know. And um, I just think it's important to say at this stage that I've been in a prison volunteering for 17 years with men who who have been sentenced to prison imprisonment and as a result of addiction, but it includes murder. And today I've been out with a man who I, I have been supporting for a number of years who committed a double murder in alcohol and um, addiction. But I think one of the things is, you, you know, I have chatted to uh, in depth and listened to many, many, you know, many, many offenders and the key often to it all is, is about our past not being, I mean, the work that I do is to examine their past. But when the past is in the present and it hasn't been examined and we're still acting out in the present, the stuff in the past, which you know and I know can lead a lot of people into trouble. And the key is to examine those issues. So just to kind of sit in that I'm going to say the word denial, because that's what I felt was apparent from the Dancy family. It's easier. This is my only my opinion, and with the greatest respect to them, that I felt that uh, they were sitting in denial because it was too painful to peel back the realities of what happened, you know, that night. And I I work with men in prison who. Do do that. They peel back their past in order for them to live in their present in a much more informed way and realistic way. Because you have to peel back the onions. Yeah, I I felt compelled to when you said about doing a, this podcast with you. I said absolutely compelled because it's so important to uh, for myself to bring my search for the truth to this podcast. It is only my search for the truth. And you brought your search for the truth and for other people to make up their minds what they believe the truth to be in this case. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy. And health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, 
and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths and Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormills, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormills.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I think that's very powerful, Jackie. You know, the the peeling back the layers and to you have to have mental fortitude to do that, to face the fear, right? The fear of your actions and of maybe past actions, things that have happened. And you mentioned denial with the family because the event might be too painful. Although I feel maybe it's not the event that's too painful because they didn't really know anything about it. It was only one. The wasn't reputation. It? It's the, the reputation. reputation. Yeah, I think is what they're trying to preserve. But but what is reputation after all? You know, you've got two women, and certainly Dr. Naomi Dancy, who was an incredible, brilliant, pioneering woman who was noble and honourable and and should be honoured and named in her murder. That is everything that they should be proud of, of, of the legacy. But the investment is in a faux narrative. And maybe it would take them some time, you know, that this was too in the moment, that when they step back from it, and if they do critically examine, and if they face that fear and do the things, as you say, which which is painful, then maybe they arrive in a different place and think that Dr. Naomi Dancy and Mary Garston are, are women that are worthy of their attention and their time and, and their honour and they write them back into their family history. Because for me, I certainly wouldn't be someone protecting a faux male narrative. And I say faux as in false because it's not the truth of even who he is. Let's set the murders aside, who Dr. John Dancy was as a person was very different to what he wrote in his memoirs where he's the hero in his own story. That takes a certain kind of person to uh, write those things. And if he did commit one murder, two murders, even three, and he carries on living a normal life, it points in the direction of psychopathy. Yes. The lack of remorse, right? The lack of empathy, the lack of care. Even when he talks to Dorothy Sayers, he's not saying, I'm racked with, you know, I feel this emotion, my children growing up without their mother, this is the most catastrophic event in, in my life. He doesn't say any of that. He just laughs and says that the, he's a philosopher and this is, you know, like a story out of a crime book. It's devoid of compassion and care and empathy and anything that you would expect. And it's what's missing for me. It's not always about what's present. It's the fact there isn't any narrative about the women in his storytelling. He totally leaves them out. They're not even footnotes 
And that, again, is a red flag. So it's just the audacity, I think, for me and the arrogance that he created this sort of image of who he was, that it's just all hot air. It's once you test it, as Tristan did, and check, did he go to Cambridge? Did he do all these things? No, he didn't. But he's a very good storyteller. And unfortunately, everyone's relying on his storytelling when these murders happened. And I just don't buy into the storytelling for all the reasons that we've we've questioned, that he is a great storyteller, if nothing else. I think education was very important. It came across in the podcast to the Dancy family that, and the fact that, you know, that highly regarded that he, he, his, he went to Cambridge because I know that Christian's father-in-law, you know, is a revered academic himself. But um, it, it must have been kind of very upsetting to find out that John Dancy was not what he went to Cambridge but even that was challenged by I think Mark who kind of said well you haven't proved that he didn't go to Cambridge and you haven't proved that he didn't go to spy school the absence of somebody's name in Cambridge is quite a quite a clue is it not Yes. And if you take one thing on its own, it's probably unremarkable, right? But once you look at all these things, the totality of it, it becomes much more significant. Yes. We look at the totality of things. We question everything, but the totality also, the macro picture, it can't be ignored. Yes, I would imagine it is painful for the family because of that legacy of Dr. John Dancy. They've named many generations after him and the fader you know, that that Mark's taken on for himself. And they clearly are a very bright family, academically smart as well. But perhaps that came from Dr. Naomi Dancy and perhaps they've been looking in the wrong places. And is that such a terrible thing to now know that actually they had a brilliant line, but it was from Dr. Naomi Dancy? Why is that so terrible to to reconcile? No, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. But I do want to honour her and Mary Garston, and I think I think that's important to centre them back, and that's part of why I certainly wanted to to share my thoughts and analysis. And um, it's not always easy, even doing this. Going, it, it feels like against a, a dominant narrative that's gone out. And let's face it, Ghost Story was number one in Canada, in America, in Australia, you know, across the world. But it is important just to set the narrative straight of what we were asked to do, what we were given, why we arrived at the questions that we had, and that this wasn't just an open and shut case. And I certainly, you know, let's say for all purposes, if Tristan and others sense this ghost type presence of somebody, you know, who's creating a vibration, normally ghosts, if you believe in them, it's because they haven't been able to pass, i.e. there's something still rupturing for them, right? That their truth has not been told and therefore they cannot rest. Yes. I think that's absolutely true from my little research into that, that it's the, you know, that you can, um, you know, let them go and surrender them and that they can move on. So my thinking is that if that is the case, then why would there be any ghost-like energy if the case was solved and that was just what happened? Why would there be any vibrations from Dr. Naomi Dancy? Why why would she be sat in the chair at that seance? Why would she not have just passed if if her truth was already out there, that this was 
she was murdered by her brother and that's what happened. And as horrific as as that is, that's what happened. And why would she be bringing this, this energy? So that didn't sit with me either. Not just that the psychic had got lots of things wrong, even including how she was killed, which is a very specific way of killing someone. It's highly unusual. But there were lots of things that he got wrong. And therefore, I just don't buy into, given the case file, given the facts, the narrative of where they ended up. It all just sounded, again, just too convenient, convenient framing, just as convenient as Dr. John Dancy's statement was, pointing all the arrows at Morris Tribe right from the start, literally from the second or third sentence, he goes in on Morris Tribe. And there's no room for doubt of anything else or any other way that this happened. And that for me, having read thousands of statements, thousands and thousands across my career, that was very unusual to see that right at the start. That's not normally what people lead with in a statement after a traumatic event, but that also stood out to me. Now, trauma creates different things in different people. So you can never say it's always X or it's always Y. Is all you can do is raise a question about it. And with behaviour, that's what I do. But there was a lot more that was, it was an omission. It was missing from his story and account. There's a time gap which points to deception and there's a lack of emotion, of empathy, compassion, care towards Dr. Naomi Dancy. And that's across the whole police file from him, but also in his conversation with, with Dorothy Sayers. That seems to be salient. And then in his own memoir, which admittedly I haven't read, but how it was presented in Ghost Story was Dr. Naomi's only mentioned in terms of how they met and then she never features again, which you would think was something like this and it happening within a family, then she would have been mentioned more. But it's the omission of her, it's the erasure um, of her that is another red flag. It said also in one of the police reports as well, because one of the police reports actually reports on the murder almost verbatim from John Dance's statements. He just takes that as fact and then kind of puts all of that in his own report. But one of the superintendents that has come to my knowledge that the press and insurance people are whispering amongst themselves that Dr. Dancy is a good actor and that his story has not removed their suspicions. Now, this is in the police report. I hear from Superintendent Sands that anonymous letters are arriving. The peculiar suspicious incidents are the story about the photographs in the nude, the doctor's romantic story of foxing the murderer, because he does use that word foxing, the lapse of time between discovering that his wife had been shot dead and his call to police, which you quite rightly highlighted. On his own admission, he picked the razor up from the floor and put it back into the dead man's hand and the bullets were made dum-dum with the aid of the doctor's hacksaw, the large sum of money due from insurance on the death of the doctor's wife, the effecting of an insurance by the doctor on himself and his wife shortly before the tragedy. That's always a red flag. Yes. Then the police go on to say, this is Commander Crime, CID, notwithstanding all of this, we have a dastardly crime that, in my opinion, could only have been committed by a lunatic. That's what you said. There is no doubt the dead man was a lunatic. And as I said before, the verdict given by the coroner's jury seems to be the correct one. 
And then he says, you might feel that we ought to have something in writing from someone belonging to the insurance company to show the murderer was informed about Dr. Dancy double-crossing him with a new insurance policy. Such a statement would support the theory that the murderer did it out of revenge. So you can see the boxing and coxing, can't you? The squaring of it all by the police, in spite of all these kind of anomalies and anonymous statements and blah, blah, blah to the police. You know, this was committed by a lunatic and we're quite happy, well, of course, the coroner's jury. Also, we have to say that it wasn't just the police, the coroner's jury had found out that it just gave the verdicts of murder-suicide. Yes, and as as you say, just above that, just above the red flags that were, were written, the officer talks about the nude women photos and he said he also found in the murderer's room a detective thriller entitled Murder in the House. And he had shown the photos to Dr. Dancy, and I'm just reading from the report to Dr. Dancy. The doctor replied, yes, he was, yes, he has always got trashy stuff like that. So that's what I was referring to with the, the book as well, that that was in the file. Then he lists all of the concerns, the red flags, and one of those red flags was the time gap, discovering his wife being shot and the call to the police. And then the, the post-mortem said 12.20 a.m. she was killed. Now, I, the first thing I raised was that with Tristan and the Pineapple Studios team. And they said, oh, no, that must be wrong. I, I think that they've got it wrong in the post-mortem. They said, that's not right. And I said, uh, well, if you look at the post-mortem, you can have a look. It says 12.20, I've got the note here, Dr. Naomi Dancy and 12.30, Morris Tribe. And the call was 1.37 a.m. That that was in the police report. And they said, oh, no, I think they just got the report, the, the timings wrong of, of the time of death. And I said, well, that's not what I was, that's not what I believe from reading it. Why do you think that they got the timings wrong? Oh, because Dr. Dancy said they must have, uh, they were shot around one o'clock of him working back of the time that, so again, it just shows the, his dominant narrative being accepted by people without question. And I said, what are the chances that a doctor who did the post-mortem recorded the time of death, the time that he believed they both died to be wrong? It's possible, but it's unlikely but what it told me was the mental gymnastics that people can go to to fit a certain narrative without questioning why they're even going down that road. And I always try and just keep keep the open mind of it could be we've seen 99 times it happened this way, but there's a 1%. It could happen in another way that we've never seen before. And I'm always open to that. And that's why I don't talk in absolutes about anything. I talk about possibilities and the probability you know, what I heard from Hamish was absolute. It's absolute. And that's a problem for me. The, there aren't absolutes here, but there are patterns of behaviour. There are question marks. There's a lot of red flags that you can't deny. You can't just airbrush them out to suit an easier narrative of, of what you believe that two and two equals five and it's going to stick as five. You have to keep questioning it. And when you get new information, as you know, Jackie, you reassess what you're thinking. And as I did, when I heard Hamish say that, I immediately went back to my notes, looked at everything again. The self-doubt may come in for the female. I don't always think it comes in, you know, for, for the male, that they just believe they're absolutely right without question. 
I think what Hamish was saying is that we were trying to fit it into something that made it very fantastical was the word that he used. You know, and that's the last thing that I would have done. I can't speak for you, but, you know, I know your work, so I can probably, you know, say convincingly 100%. You wouldn't do that. You know, why would we? Why would we want to make something in order to kind of suit our own kind of belief in this drama where where it's so apparent that if that's what I couldn't understand about Hamish, there are so many questions to be asked in this police file that to say that I'm looking for something to make it fantastical, well, you don't have to look for something. It's all there. It's all there. Yes. And you just went through a number of the points that even the police CID had written, but did not query any further. But I think where I land, I mean, it's it's also the, the sentence, notwithstanding all this, of all the red flags, we have a dastardly crime that, in my opinion, could only have been committed by a lunatic. There is no doubt that the dead man was a lunatic. Well, that's what we're told by one person. And that one person is Dr. John Dancy. And the being shot in each eye, well, yes, that doesn't sound like somebody who's mentally healthy to do something like that, the revenge part to it. But that means it points elsewhere away from Dr. John Dancy. And that, in essence, is the cleverness for me of of what he did. It's the cleverness of and the, the thinking it through that you have to... You have to question it. It's either somebody with personal revenge. Were he and Naomi arguing? Was there a new partner? And that's what I asked. You know, was he having a relationship with someone else? Was he wanting to get rid of her? Had she told him she wanted out of the relationship? Had she had enough? And therefore it was revenge from Dr. John Dancy or was it staged to make it look like revenge? And then, oh, by the way, he made threats to kill his sister and to shoot her in the eyes. Well, everything then... You called it boxing and coxing, which is a phrase I haven't heard for a long time from my policing days. But yes, everything then is boxed and coxed to fit the narrative. And then what they're seeing is all packaged up from his narrative, the same as what I heard from the pineapple team when we first talked. What was also glaring in this, that there was no statement from the hospital, no statement from any colleagues, no statement about Dr Naomi Dance's, you know, friends that she would have and colleagues that she'd have at that hospital, had she said anything about the marriage, which, again, I I asked Christian about, you know, was there any indication that she was unhappy, blah, blah, blah. Because, again, those letters that the daughter Bindle talks about, that, you know, they were aesthetically happy and it was a loving, you know, relationship, which I'm not disputing whatsoever because it's Bindle's experience, not mine. But... There was nothing around Dr. Naomi Dancy to find out what kind of person that she was or any statements from any friends. It was just whatever Dr. Dancy says, whatever Dr. Dancy says, that is what happened. And I have to sit here and say to you, I'm not having it. I am not. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Yes. And I think, I mean, you, you mentioned Bindle, the, the daughter and her account, of course, is her experience. But what I will say is when I think back and children that I interview, they don't always know what really is going on in their parents' relationship. It, it's very hard to, uh, unless people are arguing all the time where it's very obvious that there is abuse or something happening, it's hard to understand whether perhaps your mother is not happy in the relationship, whether she's fallen out of love, whether she's, you know, her interests are elsewhere. The same with your father. And particularly if they hide things as children, you don't always know everything that's going on in your parents' love life. But Bindle's account is one thing. And what we know of Dr. John Dancy's actions, not his words, his actions, is that he did have a relationship with a woman who was 17 years younger and he introduced her to the children very quickly, just within weeks, and then he marries her. And I don't think that was a new relationship. I can't believe that that happened and accelerated within two weeks. Well, let's see what everybody else thinks, eh? What do you reckon? Absolutely, Jackie. Anything else you want to throw in the ring from your notes of questions that you had or a thought? I know you talked about the window and that there was I a... I think about that. I was just reading that. There's no bullet hole in the curtain. But the police, I've gone back on the evidence. The police didn't say the curtains were drawn. It was only Dancy said the curtains were drawn when he spoke to Dorothy L. Sayers. Oh, the other thing was there was no blood on the chippings from the door, which has been forced. So the door has been forced in and the chippings on the door because it was a left hand. I've tried this at home in my own house. I haven't forced a door, by the way. I remember saying to Christian and Annie, let's open my door, you know, left hand door and which lock would force because it was the lock on the right hand side that was forced open, if you remember. And I without actually experimenting and breaking my own door, which I'm not prepared to do, I just wondered if that could be apparent, that which lock would go first? Would it be on what side would it go? So I thought that was quite interesting. Again, there, were no, there was no blood on the chippings of the door being forced. So when it was forced, you know, the kind of bits of wood stray off. Morris mm-hmm. is in there, cuts himself, is saturated, he's dead. Why didn't any of those chippings have blood on them? Yeah, that's interesting. And you would want to test these things, wouldn't wouldn't you? I mean, these are some of the things that I've done as experiments in cases to test it, to see, you know, you can have something that is a hypothesis and then it becomes a theory once you have tried all of those different experiments. And you raised another very interesting point, which was... Um, about the window that was put in and what was outside the window. And I think Tristan said, oh, we have a photo Um, because you you said, well, I would want to go there and look at it. And of course you would as a detective or even as an analyst like me. I I always go to a scene to see it for myself. And well, Tristan showed you a photo and you saw a drain pipe. 
And your observation was that you could very easily get out the window and shimmy down the drain pipe. And Tristan was quite surprised by you saying that. But of course, that was a method that was used by burglars, as you pointed out. And those sorts of observations and testing, I think, is is really important. It's an important part of this. Yeah. And they, they also kind of spoke about that in the, in the murder manuals, and it was the 5W and 1H principle, who, what, where, when, why, how. You know, who, who's the victim? What happened? Where did it happen? When did it happen? Why did it happen? How did it happen? And then you would today develop a, a, a working hypothesis. And as you say, that does not, you don't become fixated on that. You keep an open mind as well. But there is a working hypothesis and, and stuff. And, and then you have to be aware, which I've written here, confirmation bias. You must, you don't, you don't seek information to confirm a decision. And again, we know that in the Rachel Nickel case, you know, where they confirmed that it was Colin Stagg. We're not looking for anybody else. Colin Stagg was completely innocent. And it was Robert Napper who killed Samantha Bissett and his daughter. And Jasmine. And yes. Jasmine Bissett and stuff. And again, you know, about the Yorkshire. And I've written here, decision-making should never be binary. Think of a third option, which is what you just said. Yeah. And that. Prepare to be wrong. Prepare to be wrong. So we've I've written all this down. And in you know, and in fact, and that's why I found those comments in the in the podcast, you know, in examining this case, I had written all this down about confirmation bias, reminding myself all of that. And then it kind of accused of, well, why would you, why would detectives do this? And Taylor said, well, you know. They like to have this kind of make it fantastical. And I think that's just an insult. I have written all this down. It's all in there in my notebook. You know, you know, when I'm reading this and I just think, crikey, I'm not having this. Yeah. Well, I, I completely I'm agree with you, left, Jackie. I'm not being left hanging in this podcast to think, oh, well, you know, we all try and look and make it fantastical. And, you know, you're looking for shadows or whatever you said. Um, you know, you're looking for something that isn't there. Well, but I know your work as well. And I could tell from how you were talking in terms of your questions that you asked, you were not talking in absolutes. You were saying, I need to stop you there. I have a question about this. Therefore, I could understand that you were not just accepting things, you were questioning and querying everything and things that had not been thought about before. So I felt that it was extremely unfair to just have it packaged up that we were all looking for something far more exciting and fantastical in this case, when actually, I mean, it doesn't get more, you know, dramatic as a crime scene in terms of what's gone on anyway. You don't need to create things. And why would we? Why would you even look to create something when actually you've got an extensive case file where everything's just already there, although there are other questions that we would bring now with modern day uh, thinking and testing and, you know, processes and certainly in terms of behavioural analysis and statement analysis and things that, you know, was only just really being developed then. But, you know, looking at a statement and understanding the balance of it, of how much you would expect to be about the current of the actual traumatic event versus, you know, a whole preamble of extraneous information. Well, 75% to 80% of what he's written in the statement is extraneous. It's setting a scene. 
And it's for purpose. And any extraneous information, when you're taught at the FBI Academy, the extraneous information points to deception and you're looking for indicators of veracity. So that's really what you look to, first of all, but you can't ignore when you have indicators of deception, like a time gap where someone just moves you on or it's ignored that you've got an hour that's unaccounted for. You know, the first thing that you would ask was, can you explain you found Dr. Naomi Dancy when, or you interacted with Morris when, when can you just explain the time as it unfolded as you remember? Because obviously his statement's taken in the morning, but there's, he talks about in a few minutes, he sees Dr. Naomi Dancy and then he calls the police. It's a few minutes. Well, it was an hour in, if we, if we take uh, what's said about the, the time of death to be you know, as accurate as it can be. So all of those things, when you get verb changes from present tense to past or past, you start out in past and go to present. When someone's giving an account, that can be an indicator of deception. There's a lot that you look to in terms of language that when I see a statement that's four pages long and really only 34 sentences are dedicated to that event, when actually a lot has happened, that's, that's not a balanced statement. And it was right at the end that he talks about the event. So even in terms of how something is described, that can, what we know now, point us to ask more questions. It doesn't give us the answers. It's all it does is give us another line of yes. asking follow-up questions for clarification. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no absolutes with that, but interviewing people is a very important part. In America, they interrogate, you know, once they get to a stage with, with the interview that they're not believing the account they're being given, then it moves into a different vein of interrogation. But Dr. John Dancy certainly wasn't tested in terms of his account. And I think those threats, everything up front is just so perfectly stage managed and the staging that we know isn't just about crime scene staging, it's also about language and how you can stage things through language. And you have a very educated man, a clever man, without doubt, yes. um, but a clever man at storytelling. And that's why, for me, knowing that now, which I didn't know before, I already said the statement pointed to deception and that there were things that needed to be clarified. But now I know he's a water mitty and all the other things that came out of the, the podcast, for me, the search for truth just becomes a, a bigger investigation, actually. And that's also why I wanted to talk to you, because it wasn't just a, oh, well, I did that and I moved on to the other things that I'm doing. I, too, continue to critically examine my thoughts and where I was now based on all the information that, that we have. And that's a healthy process. Whether you're right or wrong, you still need to look at your contribution. And that's what we've both done. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me and to share your thought processes. And, you know, I, I think you're tremendous, Jackie, at what you do and how you do it and sharing the, the questioning process of where you've come from. You were very polite in doing it in terms of, you know, can I stop here and can I, you know, is this a point where I can talk about X or Y? Um, I would have liked to have heard far more from you. So that's why I'm very grateful now. I've had the opportunity to hear your your thoughts and your process and the work that you continue to do with people in prisons is also of huge contribution as well. So I just want to thank you for your time. No, thank you very much, Laura. And I, I have actually, you know, I feel better talking to you and sharing this stuff because, 
you know, Tristian was absolutely lovely and so was Annie. So it was always kind of very, very pleasant experience <laughs> being and talking with them and stuff. And um, I, I really kind of respect the two of them. And I do understand, as I've said, Tristian's position is just an observation and not a criticism. But I remember you, you know, that crime analyst and in those early days where, in a way, crime analysts were fighting for their place within the criminal investigation department. And I also know, uh, remember actually, remember, you know, that that was a tough gig for you, finding your voices and, and you've just grown and flown and you have a huge reputation in your belief in yourself and working with the FBI, you know, you're highly experienced and professional and you know your stuff. So for me, um, I am in awe of you. I find you really, really inspiring and I listen to your podcast and stuff. So thank you for allowing me to share with you what I believe happened on that day in 1937. Oh, thank you, Jackie. And I appreciate you saying that because, yes, crime analysts weren't respected when we started out. There was a generation before me and I was the next in and it came with a lot of pain. And to be the voice that's always saying something different is not an easy journey uh, at all. And it's not easy even doing this where we're talking, you know, having another conversation outside of what's gone out as a dominant narrative. But I do believe that I have to share my voice, my experience, my knowledge and represent victims when they don't have their voice. And I feel strongly driven by that. But I've had some brilliant mentors around me and people that I've met along the way, but it's not been an easy journey. And I think now with the proliferation of true crime, still trying to you know, maintain my space and my voice when there's such a, a rush to get things out quickly without fact-checking or framing things for clicks or for likes or, you know, to be sensationalist. I try and remain grounded and measured and do the work on behalf of the victims and try and continue the search for truth in cases that are unresolved and try and help people and amplify victims' voices, but also families' voices and detectives, former detectives' voices. And when, you know, people get lost in the shuffle of ensuring that we hear another version of events rather than just how things are framed, whether it be in a podcast or a documentary, there's always different ways of seeing things, but trying to remain measured and um, independent Independent and also in context, because what happens today, how I observe it, is the context is so limited and we just get a narrow kind of clip of a version of what happened and that version becomes fact and that version becomes the truth. And we see that on social media, you see it on Twitter all of the time. You never see it. It's, stories have a beginning, a middle and an end. You know, that is the narrative. And I think what we have done is looked at that story, which is an official police document, this is what was produced by the police. And you've had the privilege to read the coroner's um, report. I haven't. I didn't get it. But nevertheless, what we have got is put down in the public domain as fact. Yes. As the story with the beginning and middle and end. And what we're disputing are some of the narrative within the evidence that the police then presumed it was murder and suicide. So, yeah, I think myself. Um, I have helped bring Dr. Naomi Dancy and Mary Garson's voice and I'm going to say Morris tried to, to the fore. 
Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that. And thank you so much, Jackie. And I really hope we talk again and our paths cross on projects and cases. We definitely will. I know that's going to happen. Thank you very much, Laura. Lovely to see you. And I'm it's so a pleasure. pleased for you uh, that your life, you know, your life and your family and your journey and your work is just going from strength to strength. Well done, even though thank you're across you. the board. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm jumping in here to wrap part three. Jackie's amazing, isn't she? The search for truth comes with a great responsibility. I take that seriously, as does Jackie. I see a kindred spirit in her. You know, I have no interest in making cases more true crimey, as Tristan said, or more fantastical, as Hamish said. I do have an interest in the facts and the evidence and centering victims in their own stories and correcting narratives to ensure women are not footnotes in their own legacy, their own history, and their own murder. The totality of the circumstances cannot and should not be ignored in this case. Dr John Dancy was a great storyteller who delighted in a deception well executed and who enjoyed getting one over on people. I'm not going to rationalise or minimise or excuse his behaviour. Two women who married Dr. John Dancy ended up dead, their lives cut short, and in the wake of their deaths, Dr. John Dancy erased both Dr. Naomi and Mary from the family history. He wrote himself as the hero in Dr. Naomi Dancy's murder, and he had an answer for everything, all the nuanced details. Everything he did or didn't do was excused or rationalised by family members or others, even the estimated time of death, to fit Dr. John Dancy's story. It really is unbelievable, people falling over themselves to defend him. Dr. John Dancy is no longer alive, but he still holds power from the grave. Welcome to the patriarchy. Also, I said I'd return to Dr. John Dancy's police statement, and one of the things that jumped out of me when I was analysing it was how many eyes there were. The I statements really stood out to me. He framed himself as the perfect husband and father. I sent my wife to bed. I peeled my wife an orange. I wrote to the children. He set the stage right from the start. He was the perfect husband and father. And I have no doubt he did some good things and that he was extremely charismatic when he wanted to be. He was good at manipulating people through charm. And many fell for it because charm disarms. But when you scratch the surface, you see a different person underneath, like when they feel slighted or they don't get their way, or there's a loss of status, or there's a much younger woman on the scene. And in this case, it was Mary Garston. And let's not forget that Dr. John Dancy benefited financially in both cases, and he erased them from the family history. That alone is cause for concern and for the case to be looked at again. Also, there's a matter of Agatha Christie's book, Murder in the Muse, a locked door mystery about a woman found dead in her home behind a locked door, and everyone thought she had killed herself. Everyone bar Poirot, who noticed that she was shot in her left temple, but she was right-handed. How would a right-handed woman shoot herself from the left? The book was published on the 15th of March, 1937, just eight months before Dr. Naomi was brutally murdered. It might explain why the gun wasn't used. 
as well as the acoustics in the bathroom that would make the gunshot much louder. And Dr John Dancy could have broken the lock on the door before he killed Morris. That's a possibility too. It all has to be considered. You see Hamish saying that, now understanding how Dr John Dancy lived his life and who he was, that that made it less likely that he killed Dr Naomi and Morris. Well, for me, it's the opposite. All of the things that we've heard through the Ghost Story podcast make it more likely, and that he got away with murder, and he delighted in that, so much so that he called a leading crime writer to boast about it, When analysing his post-offence behaviours, his actions betray him. He was hardly a loving, respectful, grieving husband and father, or a man to be admired or memorialised. I mean, what's the message to women? I'm curious, now that you've heard my analysis along with Jackie's, what do you think? Let me know on social media, on Instagram at Crime Analyst, on Twitter at The Crime Analyst, and the rest of my socials are in the show notes. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst, and if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.